Welcome. This is the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. My name's Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer, Tun Miai. We're three artists that live and work in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly in between our many jobs and creative endeavors. We use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways to, to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the Art Grind. Hello, Art Grinders. Welcome back. It's great to have you here with us again today. I hope you've been in the studio making some things. So on this week's episode, Marshall and I actually interviewed Ken Johnson. You might not know him, but he is a writer. And he's pretty much known as an art critic for the New York Times. And he's been critiquing art and writing about art for almost 40 years. So he has a lot of experience looking at images, thinking about images, um, and thinking in general. <laughs> Basically, Ken gave us an excellent conversation. It's just perfectly art grind. And we touched on a lot of topics, including the humor in art. You know, what is comedy um, in art, but also what is humor in general? Is it surprise, connection, release, compassion, irreverence? Who knows? It's unexpected. We talked about surprise a lot. Um, consciousness, psychedelics, reality as process. Um, we talked about the Philip Gustin show. We talked about what the importance of an art critic is, and even more than that, how Ken approaches looking at art. Um, one of the major questions he asks himself is, do I like it? So how do we trust ourselves? How do we trust our own opinions? And how do we measure quality? What is quality? It's a really interesting interview. I love everything he says. It's going to get you thinking, you know? So in the second half of the episode, we ended up showing Ken a bunch of paintings that we thought might be funny, you know, just to get his reaction from them. And they were so insightful. So I think Ton is going to make it so that the pictures will pop up on your screen so you know which image we're talking about. And uh, stay tuned until the end because Marshall and I gave some really cool summaries of our talk with, with Ken. It was kind of fresh. It's worth hearing. All right, folks. Let's jump into the Ken Johnson interview. Uh, happy painting, drawing, sculpting, anything else you're doing. Take care. Well, uh, Sophia, I have to say, I, I, I didn't know that we weren't, weren't Instagram followers. Oh, I know. We do. Followers. And I listened to a couple of your musical posts. They're fantastic. Oh, thank you. I really like them. I mean, I know there's a lot of artists around playing stuff, but and I've heard some of them, but yours is the best. <laughs> oh, what? Great. That means a lot. <laughs> I want to come over and jam with you. Oh, do you play? I have a Telecaster, yeah. Huh, great. What do you play? Well, I've sort of nominally been trying to learn jazz using videos on, on mine, but That's like awesome. I played, you know, rock stuff as a kid and then didn't do very much but in the past three years i've been like practicing an hour a day every day at least and getting into like a cup for a couple of weeks i've tried to concentrate exclusively on playing dorian skill in the dorian mode just to learn that <laughs> so yeah, it's like I get up in the morning. This is my routine during the shutdown. Mm. Get up and I play for an hour or two. That's then I go back to bed. 
<laughs> then I paint all night. Oh, oh that's, that's a great routine. Yeah. But lately, I, I really am trying to learn more about jazz. So I'm listening mm-hmm. to very, you know, like classic jazz, Joe Pass, classic jazz guitarist. Mm. Okay. Things like that. And then I, listen, I look at a lot of YouTube videos that are like tutorials or interviews or stuff. It's, it's been really fascinating. It's like I could retire and do something that I wanted to do a long time ago and I never thought I'd get back to, but hmm. Sophia, don't, don't stop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, he and I worked on an album during the first four months of quarantine. Really? And yeah. And a lot of the percussion um, in my album is from him. So he would send me drum tracks to fill in songs I was writing. And sometimes we even co-wrote some songs too. So it was a really interesting experience. Does he play in like, just uh, what would seem like, um, what do you call it? Different rhythms other than 4-4 four, four and 3-4, you know, where like- Yeah, he's learning all Anyway, that's great. <laughs> I didn't know you were a musician either. <laughs> well, I'm like like an intermediate level guitarist, you know. Well, you're an incredible writer. <laughs> I know, and I'm not writing at all anymore. What's going on? Uh, well, I quit writing for the New York Times. I think it's been three years now. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to do a book, a book about humor and art. I had this idea that if you looked around at the contemporary art world, this was three years ago, uh, it seemed to me the predominant sort of mood or mode was in some way comedic. Mm. In some conceptual way or or some kind of cartoon imagery, you know. it's, and I had a, I taught a class at SVA once of freshmen, and I said, how many of you want to make humorous art? And at least three quarters of them said they did. And that's like, that's not like, the, that's not how it was when I was a kid, when I was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You wanted to make abstraction or you wanted to do uh, something like abstract expressionism or hard edge that, you know, that was what was cool. But, but so, um, I wondered why is that? It also seemed to me the idea that the dominant mood in high art would be comedic or in some way humorous, and including irony, you know, Warhols of humorous artists. Uh, I don't think it's, that's ever happened in a civilization in human history. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? No. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I think humor is a topic that I'm so interested in in general, but also in uh, in the art world, like you're saying. And I find it very hard to pull off as a painting, as a one single image, where the artist is so present in that image. 
Do you do you have any um well like Peter Saul, you know. Uh he's a major, major artist and he's doing this wacky mad magazine kind of stuff. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a big show at the new museum last year. Uh, and I when I was in grad school, I the, the painters, the, the painters that I loved were the Chicago imagists, Jim Nutt. Roger Brown, I don't know if you know those people, but uh, there was this whole movie. They, they, they formed a group called the Harry Who, and uh, their, work, their work was very sort of cartoon-based, and yet at the same time formally really interesting. So, so, it's been, so humor was something that I was always drawn towards. Mm. The art world is so full of kind of ponderous seriousness, <laughs> at least in the discourse of the art world. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I wanted, you know, I always wanted to be irreverent. Hmm. Or I was irreverent. Did I want it to be? And I was, I guess. I guess I feel irreverent. Um, so, so the question was like, so why is this in a broader sense? Now, this was three years ago. I think the landscape has changed a lot, but we can get into that. But I wondered why, why is why is humor and, and why is humor such a draw for artists now? And I thought, well, I have to look at what humor is. So now, Sophia, you took my humor class. At, That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I actually found a piece of paper today on my, before I left my studio, a bunch of drawings of you. Oh. <laughs> long hair. <laughs> and a note that said, play with the audience's awareness of signifiers and change them. This is influencing the nature of art now. That's what's written on there. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Did you say it right that or did I say it? Maybe it's a combination, but it's definitely coming from your class. That's a keeper, yeah. <laughs> uh, so my the- my feeling was, okay, so I went into humor. I tried to understand humor psychologically and philosophically as much as I could. And there's, and there's not a lot of good writing about it, which is, yeah. there is some, but... Uh, and there are a lot of people uh, who try to reduce it to some formula, and and I kind of arrived at that. But the the issue was had to do is a, an epistemological issue. Epistemology meaning like, how do we know what we know? Mm. Not what is, but how do we know what we think we know? Mm. And and what what do we not know? So things like. So states of mind like uncertainty or certainty or puzzlement, I mean, we, these are n- normal experiences we're having all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? Oh, I see what it is, you know? And uh, <clears throat> usually, or if things go along according to your expectations, then... Um, But that that doesn't continue. So you you have you. you what happens is there's going to be a surprise mm. in, at some point in life or whatever you're doing, 
And the surprise can be a good surprise or it can be a bad surprise. Anyway, it's not what you expected. It's not following along the line of what you thought was coming. Mm. So if it's a good surprise, it might it's likely to be humorous. It's interesting. Which will make you laugh. I was telling Marshall uh, about how I've been watching a lot of comedians lately. Like the past year and a half, I constantly have comedians on on my Instagram. They just come up one after the other, little bits. And I found a lot of comedians that really moved me, that really got to me. And I kept thinking, you know, what is it about them that's so funny or compelling? And I think in a lot of ways to pursue a career in comedy is, is a noble pursuit because you're kind of revealing these ugly truths about humanity. And, and in that same breath, you're allowing that, that audience to have compassion for themselves and forgiveness for themselves of this horrible thing that you're, <laughs> that you're pointing out. And they're recognizing that and they're laughing in relief. And I, I find that to be a really beautiful exchange. Well, relief is one of the... Is a, is a major question in humor, mm. as it is in music, like tension and release, tension mm-hmm. and resolve. Like the tension in a joke is just before you hear the punchline, you don't know what's coming. And in life, if you don't know what's coming, like this is an evolutionary thing, you have to know what's coming or it's going to jump out of the bushes and eat you. You know, so so we depend a lot on what we anticipate is is coming. Mm. And you you don't want to be in a situation where you're constantly being surprised unless you're in a comedy club or, or an art museum. But it's interesting that you put it in terms of like fellow feeling when you talk, Sophia. Yeah, like like compassion? Yeah. Humor can sometimes be cruel and of course offensive. Yeah. There's a there's a comedian I've been following for a while named Jessica Curson, who I I think she was must have been born and raised in New York, but um she's a queer woman, she's Jewish. And she is constantly making jokes about her life, her family, her, her weight, her, her lesbian lifestyle, whatever, whatever thing you want to say. She's always kind of allowing the audience to see her life from a, a revealing angle, an unexpected angle, like you say, mm. a surprising way. But in that way, for her, it's, it's a way for her to have forgiveness for herself. And to kind of cope with her own things that she's struggled with accepting for herself. I I don't know. And I find that to be very cathartic for her on stage in real time. And also for the audience who is having to grapple with these difficult, this difficult subject matter um, and relate to someone that kind of blurs that boundary um, between where they thought they were and where they think she is. And now they're laughing in the same room and they, they feel connected to her even though they're not gay and they're not Jewish and they're not yeah. this or that. And I, I think in that way, it's a, it's a noble, 
pursuit of comedy. What about Hannah Gadsby? Do you know? I do know her. I watched her special, actually. Did you see that? Yeah, I'm not a fan. Okay, uh, tell me about that. Well, she says, I think it was her first one, she said, I'm not going to self-deprecate myself anymore in, in the service of comedy. Remember that? Mm. And uh, I don't know. I'm inclined to think that people who make fun of themselves are, are people I want to be with. <laughs> you know, are willing to make fun of themselves. Mm. Or to see, like, how comical each of us is. Mm. bizarre individuality. Um, You also spoke about like the irreverent nature earlier of comedy. And I find that that's like one of the surefire ways to get a laugh at a party or something is to know what the values of the people are in the room. So it takes a level of like sophistication. Yeah. And just say something that's right up to the edge of those values. And it's, it's a, it's an interesting trick. People will always laugh at that. You know, that's so interesting. That's wow. That's great. I spent three, I spent a long time on this, what was supposed to become a book and that's, and I thought I had all the ideas worked out and that's when I hadn't quite, uh, <laughs> well, you can. You, you know, can take- I read books. I read a book like Steve Martin's book about comedy. When you when you listen to comedians talk about comedy, it's rarely interesting. They're, they don't necessarily have any deep philosophical insight into hmm. the comedy. They may have insights about other things, but uh, so that led me to to. I started reading a lot on neuroscience and neuroscience proves that some people say the purpose of our brain is to anticipate. Mm. And when you get that, when you hear that, you realize you're doing it all the time. (laughs) You know, I'm going to pick up this thing. I'm anticipating, you know, I'm anticipating this. My brain is actually, uh, representing it to me before I do it, mm. you know, but, but that, so that, so it has this neurological, profound neurological, uh, element, which is why I think what's so peculiar about humor is it makes, it gives us this physical reaction to laugh. Mm. So it must, this surprise element goes really deep in some way. And, it, and in some way, some, one theory is that it's about relief. Like, why do we laugh when we see a, a pompous person slip on a banana peel? And the relief theory is, thank God it's not me. You know? <laughs> you know? So, I don't know, that probably has some partial... Uh, but the, but if our brains are made to anticipate, then what? How do we anticipate? We anticipate because we've experienced a lot of regularity in the world, huh. and so we we can pretty much leave it to our unconscious brain to sort of 
uh, continue the, the movie of what's going on. And we only really have to become very alert when something happens that the movie doesn't anticipate that our brains didn't know was coming. Mm. <clears throat> That's so well said. I mean, so, so then again, going back to the question, why is there so much humor in, in art today? I think it's because there's so much uncertainty in the world. Mm. It's coping. It trained, comedy trains you to adapt quickly to the unexpected and to enjoy it. Hmm. Yeah. Now, if you don't enjoy the unexpected, you might want to revert to some culture or ideology that doesn't allow for uncertainty, where everything is fixed, you know? But that's not, that's not us. That's not our, our art world, you know? We, we, we feed on uh, the unexpected. The surprises, especially the good surprises. But as an art critic, even the bad surprises are, you know, interesting. So it's the kind of surprise where you think, I can't believe how terrible that is. That's something like that. So interesting. It makes me think of, like, all of these other reactions, emotional reactions that we have. I mean, I don't even know if you'd think... You think that laughter is an emotional reaction the same way as sadness evokes tears or pain evokes a scream? Like, I think, you know that situation where this happens, and usually it only happens with it when you have good friends, but somebody says something and you start laughing and then you start laughing more and more until everybody's laughing hysterically. <laughs> they have tears coming out down their face. Yes. You no. Know? And that that's only going to happen when you when you're with a few other people, or maybe in a comedy club. But but I love it when that happens spontaneously amongst say. A, a, I, you know, I remember like you asked me to tell stories. I don't have any good stories, but. A professor of mine back when I was maybe in my 20s, uh, my wife and I then, they, he and his wife came over for dinner. He was older, like 60 or something, but he was a good guy. And then I, at a certain point, he said, do you know anyone who could, who teaches English? And I said, would this be for yourself? And we thought that's sort of funny. <laughs> then we sort of chuckled and next thing you know we're just like dissolved in laughter <laughs> and uh, I guess it was unexpected you know and, and 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 I guess for the comedian or for someone who, who likes to be the humorous person things like that come to you it's like a gift from God or something you know, I didn't think that's a genius line, but it 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 is a gift. But you asked, said, is it a, is it an emotion? Mm. And some people say it's it's a very cool emotion because you're sort of distant. You, you have to have maintain a certain distance. 
How, how does that go? I don't know. Does it feel like an emotion to you? I feel joy. Joy. Is that an emotion? I would it's say. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. For sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't differentiate. I think I'm asking you this because you once told me art is, is the progression of human consciousness. Oh. <laughs> you told me that, and that's something that's always stuck with me. Still, I still think of it when I'm teaching art history, when I'm painting my own paintings, when I'm looking at other people's work. Um, there's something profound about that and essential about that. Um, yeah, the, I think, well, I do think that's true. In the context was, when I was taught art history in college, art was seen as the progression of form and technique. Mm. And, and consciousness wasn't, wasn't even on the table for art history. Mm. And I think that really changed after the 60s. And my theory is that a lot of really intellectually adventurous people started doing psychedelics. And in the 50s, in, into the 60s. And when you do psychedelics, you discover that consciousness is really potentially much broader than you ever thought it was mm. uh, and has a lot more variety to it than you ever imagined. And in philosophy, in the academic study of philosophy in the 50s, it was behaviorism that was paramount, or, you know, that was what, that was the ruling sort of way to look at human behavior was, you didn't have to know what their internal states were. All you had to do is look at how, what they do, how they behave. Mm -hmm. But then after the 60s, I think a lot of, now in philosophy, consciousness is the hot topic. And, and the question, like what they call the hard question of consciousness, is how uh, the relationship between mind and brain, you know, how, do, how does the brain, which is this physical thing with all these chemical processes going on, how does that produce something called consciousness, which seems to be immeasurable, intangible, untouchable? Mm. And I don't know, I don't think, personally, I don't see how we'll ever figure that out. Which means progress in consciousness can go on forever. Hmm. I like that. Do you think there's any, in consciousness, do you have any belief in a higher power in that? Uh... I have reason to think there's higher power uh, that's imminent, like in me and in anybody, for a few reasons. One from psychedelics, because if I, 
I've take I've done psilocybin a couple of times recently, and one of the things that's great about it is not that I'm yeah not I'm promoting it. Uh, if I lie back and close my eyes, I get these amazing visual. I mean, they're not hallucinations; they're even visions. I guess I don't know. It's it's. And I think this is stuff I could never have made up. My my ego, creative, artistic self, couldn't do this. What's doing it? Mm. How's this happening? Why do psychedelics not just create mental noise? Instead, they create these sort of clear, sort of uh, amazing, amazingly coherent and fluid visions. I, I that that's. Yeah, I can only think it must be a higher power. Hmm. But what that higher power is, I also think, uh, you know, I had some some experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've heard a lot of people talk about <clears throat> hitting bottom and then having this sudden experience of higher of clarity, super clarity, saying, I'm stopping this. And William James, in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, gives a lot of, tells a lot of stories about mostly, the book is about being converted, having a sudden conversion experience. You weren't religious and suddenly you are. And a lot of them that William James write about are, are alcoholics who, who have this sudden moment of clarity and life transforming. So. <clears throat> What, Marshall? Why did you? What made you ask that anyway? I was just thinking about because I think just like you, I mean, I think a lot about consciousness, and I had a, actually recent a, a little while back had some mushrooms and stuff, and it's just sort of like trying to wonder what's behind all of that, you know? Like you said it beautifully about the ordered visions, and it sort of reminds me of like water going down a drain kind of splashing all around will ultimately order itself into a pattern spiral a spiral yeah and it feels like there's so much order underneath what we're doing that we can't see or are totally unaware of i hope it comes out in paintings i'm doing to some degree and um I was just wondering your your thoughts on on that because it seems like you think about the same stuff. <laughs> well, do you know the philosopher Alfred White North Whitehead? I uh, don't think he's 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 underknown. Uh, he's my favorite 20th century philosopher, but he wrote a book called uh, Process and Reality. Whitehead's thesis is that uh, a fundamental idea is that reality is process. Nothing is fixed. Hmm. Not not the mountains. Not not this cup. Not you. Every some things are changing faster than others. But the gen. But people tend to think in terms of things that don't change, hmm. or they change so slowly that they they assume that there's some fundamental unchanging fact about the world, but there isn't. Mm. And <clears throat> and his in his 
scheme of things, it's really complicated. It, it's like trying to read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason and including in that of uh, quantum physics and relativity and, and stuff like that. Because he goes from, from the subatomic to the cosmic. He's trying to explain everything. And uh, <clears throat> what's at the basis of everything? He has two words. One is creativity, that the world is, that the universe is in a constant state of the creation of new states. Huh. Yeah. And that's happening with us right now, and it's happening on a cosmic scale. It, it would even be possible in his theory, I think, for some of what the fundamental laws of physics that we take to be fundamental might be different in the future. Huh. I mean, what he says is in this cosmic epoch, then the speed of light is a certain speed of light. But that's just this epoch or epoch. Huh. Or anyway, um, so he sees creativity as the fundamental thing, and he also calls creativity God. Mm. Mm. And it sounds like he thinks about a some sort of a shared reality that we can bank on. I know some people feel like, you know, almost like Descartes sort of thinking that the only thing you can depend on is a thought was had. And what what's thinking that and what it's, what is real is all for debate. I think on some of my darker days, I get into that thinking, like it just feels so implausible that we're, you know, have you ever, you remember those old cartoons and stuff where you have like a flea and it's having this whole life, but it's like on top of a dog. And then that dog is on top of grass in a yard. And then that spans out to a continent and then the world. And then, it feels like we're all sort of just in some little microcosm that is hard to believe it's real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, yeah. I think if I, if I, um, I sometimes wonder if I should have majored in or become a philosopher. Because, uh, if you're always going around with this feeling of wonderment, that's like the foundation of philosophy. I mean, even Vic, even someone like Wittgenstein says that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the wonderment that that there is anything instead of nothing. Um, but that nesting of realities within realities. Uh, have you seen Powers of Ten? It's a it's a video by Charles and Ray Eames. No, but I'm writing it down. It's hours. You can find it on on uh, YouTube. Okay. It starts off overhead view of of two people having a picnic in a park, and then it draws back. It's called Powers of Ten because each time the camera draws back by a order of ten. Hmm. So now we're looking at these people from the distance of the moon, say. And then we're looking at them from the distance of the sun. So the perspectives keep expanding. And then they collapse, and then you go down, and you go into the 
to one of the people's into his skin, into amongst the cells, and then amongst the atoms that make up the cells, all the way down to quarks and whatever. It's pretty. It's pretty interesting. Um, that yeah, that's amazing. It's it. it it does lead you to think that this is all just thought, like whatever it is, it's just thought somewhere. Cause the, the enormous, the enormity of things out there that we don't understand that we call dark matter, which is whatever encompasses 99% of our understanding is so enormous. It's like, wow. But that's that all you're talking about or being impressed. Like, it's you'll never run out of fodder to create paintings and artwork from from that position. <laughs> oh well, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that, if you think, try to think, it's hard to think of the world as being in process all the time. You know, you don't want your house to be too much in process. You want it to just stay the way it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but think of the, like, I think the way we look at, say we, the way we look at art or the way we look at paintings, it's not often enough thought of as a process that we go through in looking, you know? It seems mm -hmm. like you can see a painting all at once, but you really can't. Mm -hmm. And if you study the way, you know, I don't think this is talked enough about in criticism that I know of, is, is that experience of, of looking and how you can really only, when you look at a painting, you can really only, physiologically, you can only focus on a tiny portion of it, but you're scanning it, and then your brain is assembling all these little snapshots into a coherent image. So this is, Sophia, you were just, uh, you said you want, this is what I've been trying to make paintings about, that <clears throat> when, you, when you see it, you, you see one, you see it one way, and then you look for a while and you think, oh, wait, I see it a whole other way also. Mm. Simultaneously, you see it in well, the you, In a way, you can't see it both ways at the same time. You have to flip back and forth. It's sort of like if you look at a painting, you can focus on the material fabric of it. And then you can focus on the image, which is immaterial. And it's hard to, to combine both those perceptions at the same time. But it's fun to flip back and forth. Hmm. What paintings do that to you? That, not not your own paintings, but say like if you're at the MoMA or the Met, what what paintings reliably do that well for you? Well, impressionism is all about that. Hmm. You know, you make the paint really emphatic, and at the same time, you make the quality of atmosphere. And create this hallucination of reality or of a certain kind of perceived reality. So I like, you know, the whole history of perceptual art, I guess, 
whenever I see that. So in the 60s, perceptually, art about perception became really big. Why was that? Like in the 50s, say, the predominant mode was abstract expressionism, which is commonly thought of as an emotional, motion-based, emotion-based art making. In the 60s, I think it became much more, you had this shift to per, more perceptual modes. You had op art mm. and color field painting and <clears throat> just things that really play with the potential, the, your potential of different kinds of vision, purely optical or visual experience. And I think that, you know, people became interested in perception because they were taking perception-altering substances and thinking about how different kinds of perceptions make us feel. Hmm. Hmm. So I find weird, you know, in some unexpected way, I've, I seem to make stuff that has a lot of memory of the 60s, uh, pop 60s in it. Bridget Riley, of course, is, is one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to make, uh, I want to make paintings that, you know, that experience of realizing there is a complex layering of different uh, things you can see. And someone can be captivated just by that, by the shifting, uh, the toggle between, say, material and image or whatever. whatever. You see what I'm saying? No, I, I definitely feel that way. I feel like I'm constantly looking for that when I look at paintings, especially paintings. Yeah. Because I think that the visual language is such that when there is that perfect bond, that unity of what I would call, you know, from Vincent's phrasing, um, the technical narrative, the story oh, of the technical narrative, the story of the medium is kind of bonded with the image of what it, what it is making mm. happening. And then also what it means when those things are melded together in this, in the perfect way, I, I, those paintings I'm always looking for that, that, I don't know, that unity. I don't know. It, it can happen in any kind of way. It can happen from any era. Any kind of painting can have those three qualities, but I like them to be together and supporting each other in this weird way, like a trap. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, I mean, the desire for unity is so... We want that because we're fragmented. Mm. We're talking about um, the visceral response to like laughter and the emotional. Is that what you guys are talking about in that unity and painting? Does it give the viewer a more a less cerebral, more bodily response or something like a vibe? It's it gets everything for me. It's just it's emotional. You feel yourself in the space with the painting as a physical object, you feel connected to what it means in some kind of 
way that feels very specific. I don't know. I don't know. It hits everything. It becomes bodily, sure. But not all of the time. What do you think, Ken? I think that, you know, painting has not been as important. Painting was the dominant mode in the 50s. If you wanted to make a big splash, if you're a really ambitious artist, you made big paintings. And that prestige of painting ended sometime in the 60s. Mm. The people used to say, is painting dead? Well, it did sort of die. It died in the sense that now, if you really want to make a big splash as an artist, it has to be in some, it has to be heavily conceptual. Right. And but you can get that from the materiality of paint. Like Stephen Assail does that. He's incredibly conceptual with material, in some ways painfully so. Yeah, and no, all art is all art is conceptual. Um, mm. let's see. Marshall, help me out here. Uh <laughs> just nodding off. Uh <laughs> Uh, are you going to edit this? We can. I, don't, I mean, I don't care. I don't. Uh, uh, why? Why did art become conceptual? I think because so many people started going into MFA programs, <laughs> and and the justification to have their graduate art programs in universities, liberal arts colleges and universities, as opposed to art schools, was they had to be, uh, have a lot of intellectual stuff going on. You know, you learn critical thinking or whatever. So <clears throat> your conventional MFA programs don't really teach you how to do anything, how to, how, they don't teach you any craft, mm. but they, you become very sophisticated about the discourse around art. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, with the Trump era and the rise of, I don't want to say, I, it seems to me more than just identity, identity politics, but what's been called identity politics, including, you know, LBGT, QXRS, whatever it is, and Black Lives Matter, two things happen. One, I just put this as a question. I'm not a working critic anymore. I'm not seeing everything. But, but I wonder, uh, are we giving up a certain amount of our sense of humor or our willingness to be irreverent because of these serious influences <clears throat> That, that you're, you see art people making art about. And uh, okay, I forget what the other point was. So you were talking about um, th three years back, you were really noticing humor in art, and now you're saying you don't, you might not notice quite as much. Is that, is that, 
Am I seeing that the right way? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much I, I don't think identity politics, who was, I was talking to Wade uh, earlier this semester and, and he said he thought the student body at the academy wasn't that concerned about those kind of issues or worried, you know, uh, because they're, they're extremely high. It's, a, it's what's running, you know, universities are um, bending over backwards to try to accommodate these new, <clears throat> well, they're not exactly new, but new notions about equality and um, representation and all of that. Uh, and you'll see that in what museum, you know, what goes into the Whitney Biennial or what goes into the, you know, the prestige, you know, the one-man shows, one-person shows at Museum of Modern Art. You're going to see a lot more retrospectives of Black artists, and we're going to have to wait to see the Philip Gustin retrospective. Right. That, that that brings me to uh, to thinking about humor as well. Do you, do you think Philip Guston was was funny? Is he a funny painter to you? Yeah, totally. Yeah, same. I mean, it's a really kind of jaundiced kind of humor. You know, I, it's not. I wouldn't say bitter, but it's just kind of it's dark humor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and. My understanding was they they postponed or quote can't at least temporarily canceled the show because one of his motifs was this hooded clan figure, yeah, AKK figure. Mm -hmm. And he made paintings of a, a KKK a guy in a hood painting, and clearly he 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 wanted his point was. Evil is within each of us. Mm. We're all potentially evil. Right. You know? Which said, I feel like that's a fairly important thing to understand about yourself. Um, it seems like it's on the path to a greater understanding of the world when people can understand that about themselves. Everybody um, has a shadow, you know? Mm -hmm. And... When you get older, you'd start to dwell on those the shitty things you did at some point that that, that you'd rather not think about. You know, yeah. your shadow did a lot in your life that you may not be so happy about to have on your permanent record. Uh huh. Yeah. That's but the more we acknowledge the shadow, the more you shed light on it, the more we take. The energies of the shadow, or of what, like what William Blake called Satan, and we take that into us and embrace that dark energy. Well, you might make some great art, some great paintings, which I think Gustin did. Yeah, and it, it takes a little bit of the power away from it, you know, just like. Well, it doesn't control you unconsciously. You start to be. Right. It doesn't. You don't squash it out. 
You just bring it under conscious management. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's just, there's so many conversations, I think, that are important to be having. I want, I want that show up. I do want that show up. I think it's really important to have that show up. And well, I, you know, uh, in a way, it seemed to me the museum made a pragmatic decision. You know, it, maybe it is true that people would see all these Klan figures in the paintings and say, he likes the Ku Klux Klan. He must be a racist. Or something like, he's playing around or toying with or having fun with a figure that is has caused a lot of real harm to people, <clears throat> to black people. It just seems to me that that interpretation of the work is is dumb. <laughs> so the museum is saying the problem with this show is a lot of dumb people are going to get upset by it. Okay. <laughs> they're going to they're going to protest and they're going to be taken seriously. So I find it exasperating. But you know, is the museum's purpose to appeal to the dumbest people? No, that's Disneyland's purpose. <laughs> you know, we got that covered. Hollywood, Hollywood, we got, you know, there's a lot of money in, in that. So, uh, the dumbest person. <laughs> and I don't mean, you know, people with low IQs. I mean, people who are just obtuse or who think along uh, one-dimensional tracks who can't abide ambiguity. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is our world. This is why we're in art, because it is ambiguous, because it's constantly, it's fluid and fluxing and new things are always happening. Mm. And uh, the unexpected can be disturbing or scary or uh, you know the this censorious environment I'm not in favor of it <clears throat> I don't know if you if you see it that way I mean it may be that I'm just reading too many uh, too many articles about cancel culture and uh, this uh political podcasts and stuff this is funny, kid, because um, my girlfriend was at the, the hair cutter, you know, like the barber or whatever, what they call it, salon. And uh, she got to talking to the lady cutting her hair. And she was sort of like, well, you know, what, what do you do? What does your boyfriend do type thing? And she was like, oh, he's a painter. And she showed him some of the paintings that I'd done, showed her some of the paintings. And she said, I thought this is so funny. Uh, she was like, oh, that looks like this, that type of art that makes you think. I don't like that type of art. <laughs> oh. 
And I think that attitude is very pervasive. People don't want to reckon with anything. They just sort of want to, like you said, Disney feelings, you know, it's a predictable algorithm of feelings you'll get when you put in a Disney movie. And that seems to be what we're conditioned towards. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, uh, it's, it's baffling to me, but the thing I love to do more than anything thing else, I guess, is think. I'm, I'm with you. To try to think about things I didn't already know or things I don't already think. And if you live in the art world, you think, well, everybody likes to think and everybody likes surprises and new stuff. But that's not how most people in the art world or in the outside are. Mm -hmm. Well, this idea of like tradition versus invention. Mm. Like that's, that's the one. fundamental difference between Republicans and Democrats on some level. Like <laughs> we have to protect the tradition and defend these these um, things that we that we've you know, fought for it, we've done and that we've gone through. And then the other side is like, well, we don't need to keep all that because there's new things happening. It's creative, the fluidity, the reality is process, like this whole inventive way of thinking. And I, I feel right in the middle about it as an artist and as a person, I don't know. I, I feel like in that, in that way, the most, um, outrageous stance you can take politically is right in the middle. <laughs> Or to see the value of both is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I don't find that outrageous, but you, it might be. It uh, might be. I mean, it is in a Trumpian, you know, polarized world. That's, that's how it feels. Yeah, like. I think, I mean, I think art is, you know, it's about putting yourself back together, like putting, picking up the pieces. And I think every time you start a new painting, that's, don't you feel sort of fragmented and at sea? when you start and then you keep, there's this pro, I mean, painting itself, the making of a painting is a process, not only of the materials, but of your own consciousness mm. sort of becoming more and more integrated. Yeah, that's a great way to say that. And you do it over and over again because integration is something that's hard to maintain. I mean, you know. Mm. So you become addicted to that because as you become integrated, your brain, every time you integrate something, your brain shoots some dopamine that makes it feel good. It's like evolution, like our bodies, our bodies are telling us it's really a good thing to learn something new and integrate it and change yourself. Mm. Yeah. There's a huge number of people in the world who don't want, who would rather things be a little more settled. And they're called Republicans. <laughs> hey, Ken, do you mind if we just take a 10-minute break? Sure. Um, when we come back, do you think we can um, talk about your writing career? Oh, yeah, sure. I really yeah. am so interested in this. We'll get into it, but let's just take a quick break. Hey, Art Grind listeners, 
You are listening to season four of the Art Grind podcast. The show must go on. And so we're bringing it to you through Zoom during this difficult time. And I just wanted to remind you guys, we got to keep this boat afloat here. So I'm asking you, please donate to us. It's wonderful to be supported by artists who feel like they're really getting something out of this. And if you're one of those people, go to our website, artgrindpodcast.com. Scroll down to the yellow PayPal button, click it and follow the props. Even a dollar can make a difference. And if you're feeling like you really are strapped for cash and you want to help, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. All right, let's jump back into our interview with Ken Johnson. How many years have you been writing? Well, let's see. I first published something in 1983, the Albany, Albany Times Union. So how long is that? Almost 40 years, 37 years. Yeah, so... Wow. I started freelancing for, for that newspaper. I lived up in Troy, New York. And... Um, I wrote reviews of everything within 100 miles of Albany. And uh, I'd write two or three reviews a week. In a way, it was great preparation for writing for the Times, writing for a newspaper. Uh, um, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk to you about, you know, what is the importance of the art critic in the art world? Because when you're an art critic, you have this power, this authority to kind of reinterpret, recontextualize, ex even explain a work of art. Um, what, is, what is the relevance of an art critic in the art world, even now, especially right now? Why is that important? Well, I, I'm not writing art criticism now. I'm not writing anything. So my thoughts about being a critic have changed since I was a critic. Uh, one thing I think a, a, a critic can do is model a way of thinking about a particular works of art. Mm -hmm. Or to, to show, here's a way, in a way, like you're trying to do something that any artist is trying to do, which is you're trying to show people how the world is to you. Right. Yeah. And we don't have access to each other's consciousness directly. We only have these various tools of expression by which to show how the world seems to us. So my feeling about doing criticism was I'm going to try to communicate my experience of this work as clearly and as honestly as I can. Does that mean you take on the role of a, of a kind of a teacher in some way? You're teaching the audience how to look? How I look. Mm. I don't expect everybody to see things the way I do, but I would like to make myself understandable to them. But part of that about being honest and true to your experience has to do with that that function of criticism, which says this is good or this isn't good, you know. So, to me, art is good if I have a good if if I like the experience it gives me. Hmm. 
at all. And then I try to describe that. And but what goes? What is what is in the experience? A lot has to do with what you've seen before, right? Uh, because that's what surprise is dependent on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always looking for surprises. So. I've never liked the idea that the critic is some kind of a teacher. Why do we read the critics we like to read? The critics that you like to read. I don't read any critics. I hardly read critics. I I don't. Well, you should. Yeah. Well, so I I think I'm asking you why. Why should I read it? Because all right, this is that's good. All right, so. I, I, I've read enough criticism where I don't feel, I feel like I don't have to read anymore. I don't want to read. <laughs> I'm like you now. I don't really, I rarely read uh, critics. But <clears throat> when I was, for most of my life, I read as much criticism as I could stand. And um, from all points of view. So, because you're a participant in a culture, right? Right. That thing Marshall said about going to, into the room and evaluating or getting a handle on the general values of that room, mm-hmm. assuming it's a kind of a community, um, you're speaking to your community and you're trying to like the artist has contributed something new to that community and yeah i think the critic in a way is trying to contribute to the expansion of consciousness huh. i think that that is i think we see a lot of things the same way ken because I'm interested in, in a way, more in thinking and thinking about things like consciousness and humor and these type things more than I am in actually painting. It's sort of the place I enact my thoughts. That's so in the way to say that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm writing it down. Oh. <laughs> a place to enact your thoughts. And, and I think that the same way, like a critic in a, in a painting show, like, I don't know, my, my class, it's a Zoom, one of my Zoom classes. We just looked at Ginny Saville's paintings in the new show. It was all online. And it, it's such a great thing. Like you were saying, we're participants in a culture. It's almost like if we were into sports, maybe we'd go over someone's batting average or something, but that night we're in the art, so we looked at Jenny Saville's paintings. And I think that that is so important. And I'm really, I'm concerned about that getting lost. You know, you're in New York, I'm in New York, and just the way that we used to move around, going to shows, talking with people, and reckoning with ideas. And I get worried that it's all just moving post-pandemic more and more online and, and, and less of a critic, you know, like it just feels like it's, 
Instagram likes and Twitter follows and stuff rather than reading someone like, like you used to do, showing us how to think in a new way, a deep dive in something we all love, you know? Yeah. Do, do you think that's getting lost, the idea of just the community and the reckoning with someone's body of work and what they're thinking about in, in real time? Well, I think probably the, what criticism functions now mainly as is as publicity. Hmm. Right. I was telling Marshall, like, is an art critic a performance artist? Like someone like Jerry Salt <laughs> feels like they revel in that. And yeah. Yeah. If you see Jerry doing stuff in his lectures, he's like a stand up comic. He's extremely emotional. And, and I think one of the things I always say about Jerry that I think is true is like nothing matters more to him than art. Hmm. That's beautiful. You know, and the same for Roberta. Um, it's their religion. And I guess it is for for me, too. Uh, you know. And what, like, you talk about sports. I, I, I when I'm ever in the, in the car, I, I listen to sports talk radio. I love to listen. I, I don't watch sports, but I love to hear these people talking about <clears throat> inside baseball and, you know, uh, <laughs> your question too, you know, that's a question too about sports. Like what's going to happen to sports now? But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like if they show, if they have a game on, there's no audience. But yeah. they, they pipe in fake, a fake crowd noises. Yes, which I think is really weird, and and that goes to like this this really we're in an epistemological crisis. We don't know what's coming. I t oh boy, you're you're touching on one of my favorite topics right now. Is every major sporting event has been the least watched in history? this year and and it speaks to what we hold dear we don't care really if someone can hit a ball well we don't care really if someone can paint something well we care about community and conversations in our own experience within that mm. and when you take the crowd away and the spectacle and the guys hitting the ball the same exact way no one really cares it's a fascinating thing to think about. The thing I like about sports is, uh, again, my favorite topic is surprises. Like sports is a reality, a, a game is a reality happening in real time, whether you're watching it on a screen or whether you're actually there. And it's going along and it's going along and then suddenly, man, you know, somebody hits a home run or somebody runs for 90 yards or, uh, whatever, or somebody does something, and, and you're looking at people who are freaks of nature, athletic freaks, you know. Yeah. They have abilities that normal people don't have, and they're doing it. They can, like, uh, think faster than we can. They have faster reflexes mm -hmm. and, yep. and all that, and this doesn't really go to this, uh, to the social problem, but 
it is one reason why I think sports are so popular. Uh, but yeah. you take out that the crowd and then, I don't know. It's very, it's very bizarre. Very I think, I think, well, should we get back to the writing thing? <laughs> I haven't really answered uh, your questions about writing. When, when, I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a novelist. And I was deep into literature. And I got to college and I took some creative writing classes and I found that I found it really hard to tell a story to write. I found writing fiction almost impossible. It's like trying to squeeze blood from a stone. Trying to I couldn't get in fiction writing something like I guess like what my state of feeling was. Uh but I was very good at, at academic papers, writing and analysis and uh, interpretation. So, and then in, in college, I started taking art classes and art was easy. <laughs> Making art was easy. You know, you just do it. This is what drives me crazy about students, the students who get stuck. You know, I think, just do it, you know? Uh, but I wouldn't never, I wouldn't get blocked in making art. Oh. So I went to graduate school and I got a master's degree. And, and I didn't grow up being known as artistically talented. People said I could write well, but I, I wasn't. So even my parents were like, we didn't know you were into art. And uh, uh, it's still the same way. I never, I don't get blocked. I just keep making stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I worry, I think, is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. But to get back to writing, when I wrote about somebody else's art, maybe because I sort of understood what, making, what went into making art, mm. and I'd been in so many crits where we would spend, you know, an hour talking about a painting by by some grad student and looking at it from every conceivable way, that's what taught me about criticism. Hmm. I never, now you can, you know, there are classes in writing criticism, but <clears throat> I never took a class like that. Um, so then I, I worked. I got. A, I worked for five years in art conservation. I got a job in a state-run facility that had uh, res not restored but conserved works of art and objects for the for the New York State Park System. And uh, we, I was in the painting laboratory, and we used a lot of different chemicals for cleaning solvents. And I got overdosed on all that stuff, and I developed an environmental illness. And so I had to quit that job, which was a pretty good job for working for the state. And uh, But I had to quit that, and I thought, now what am I going to do? And 
I, uh, I don't, now I can't hardly remember what prompted this, but I, um, I review, I wrote a review of a graduate student show at the local, at SUNY Albany, and they published it in the Times Union, and then they paid me 50 bucks a review to, to do anything more I wanted to do. And uh, then one thing led to a next, to the next, and then I was basically at an income based on that, on doing that. And it wasn't like I was living the dream that I wanted to be a critic. I never, that was never a, an intention or a desire, really. But I could write reviews in the Albany Times Union that people in Albany like to read. <laughs> and uh, I seem to be good at taking abstruse ideas that are abstruse in the academic context and making them available to, to people who weren't necessarily steeped in that culture. And then I wrote, then I got, <clears throat> I wrote to Art, and, back then there was no internet, so the most important way to disseminate information about art was through art journals and magazines, Art in America, Art Forum, um, Art News. And I, and I subscribed to all those magazines and, and read them cover to cover. And uh, so I, 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 my favorite magazine was Art in America. And I used to, and I, at that time I thought, gee, maybe I could, you know, if I could, Get, I thought Art America was a really good publication. And I thought if I could get an article or a review in there, boy, that would be, I could die and feel like I'd made my, I'd been a success. <laughs> so they start, so I, I sent some clips and they, uh, Betsy Baker, who's editor then, liked them. And next thing I knew, I'm writing every, every month for Art in America. Wow. So, um, and I did that for nine years. And then in the mid-90s, the uh, New York Times started creating subsections. So there was uh, arts, art and culture. Uh, what was it? What is it now? Anyway, they, they had a whole section devoted to art, visual art. And oh, and the other section was for movies and moving arts. So anyway, they were expanding the, their coverage and they asked me, uh, and I was invited to, 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 do, to try, have a tryout. I was still living in upstate in Troy, but I said, I can come down on the train every day of the week if I have to, three hours on the train. And <laughs> my assignment at the start was, to review 10 shows a week. Wow. Wow. And that meant seven were just short capsule, like 50 word reviews, 50 to 70 word reviews. Mm -hmm. Three were uh, like 250 word reviews. 
And I had never had, you know, I had written for magazines. It would take me six weeks to write a 2,500-word article. And here I'm writing that much every week. Wow. How do you do that? The change was, when I wrote for Art in America, was I had to create a conceptual framework in which to conceptualize and by which to contextualize and interpret the work. It was analytic writing. When I started writing for the newspaper, my right, it was based on feeling. Like I go to a show, do I like this or do I not like it? That's the first question. I don't think enough critics ask themselves that question anymore, but, uh, because some shows I'm not going to like, and I'm going to write that, too. Um, but the first thing is, how do I feel about it? I could hate it. I could find it disgusting. I could find it. It gives me joy. It could be awesome. It could be wonderful. It could be ponderous. It could be stupid. All that kind of stuff needs to be right at the front. That's the guts of the thing. And it's easy to know your feelings. Or is it? I don't know. You have direct access to your feelings. Can you put those into words? And do you have the courage to ex- to say a feeling uh, that may be hurtful to somebody, like to the artist? Right. You've got to be able to do that. You can do it respectfully and constructively, but what I mean, don't, don't we want art? Art is all about value, right? Not monetary value, but like, and if it's about value, some art is better than other art. Some artists are better than other artists at right. making art. So interesting. <laughs> and you know that immediately. You don't have to figure it out. You have to figure out how to say it, but uh, so so writing for the newspaper, I could start with the feeling and then say, "All right, what made me feel that way?" And then I proceed to describe the work in a way that says, "Oh, these are the things that caused the feelings I'm having." Mm-hmm. So as I'm writing, I'm sort of discovering what made me feel that way. You know. The thing I loved about just writing criticism is discovering something that I was experiencing that I hadn't quite known I was experiencing. That's amazing. I mean, I really relate to that just as an artist because I'm not being, you know, paid to make words about what I'm experiencing, the feelings that I'm putting to is it good or is it bad? The value I'm giving the image. But when I look at art, I weigh it against mm-hmm. what I like. Absolutely. And I am very in touch with my, my own biases of what yeah. I like. And I feel comfortable with that. I don't have to share it. I don't have to publish it in, in the paper. <laughs> but I mean, I know like yeah, when I get my, my job. Instagram feed, I have an algorithm of the paintings, the painters that I like come up, not the ones I don't like. Yeah. And 
I don't know. I, I like, I like what you're saying because I feel like in some ways we've lost touch with that ability to, to say what we think about a piece of work on Instagram. We can't, you can't, you can't go on there and say, I don't like this piece. You can't, oh. you can't unlike an image. You can only put a heart next to it. You can't give it a negative heart. You just unfollow Yeah, no, right. You can't Here. give it a negative heart. Yeah. Um, uh, like, anyway, I don't know why I'm bringing this up. Marshall, do you know what I'm saying? Well, it sounds like you guys both are talking about quality, like a whole range of artwork you know, whether it be cross mediums or cross concept, all this stuff, there's something, there is a measure, and I guess that measures quality. And what is that? Do you, do you Ken, do you have any thoughts from all these years of, of looking and reviewing work? Like, what is quality? What would make an abstract piece quality or a figurative piece quality or sculpture quality and then the, the absence, you know? Um, yeah, to me, it, it just comes back to surprise. I mean, some, you know, does it surprise me? Then I'm interested. Yeah. And when I'm interested, then I want to find out what, what is it about it that interests me? what's compelling to me. Uh, and if that interest is positive, then, you know, what do I like about it? And what, and what, do, so the question you're asking is, the things I like are based on some values that I have, right? So I value surprise. Mm. Uh, cool. I think there's a popular conception of the critic as somebody who creates standards or gives us a measuring rod for judging quality. Uh, whether it's like formal, I mean, in, in modern art, it's, it's formal. Like there's been, there's <clears throat> for a long time, this idea that you could, like the reduction of art to abstraction was in a way to find what the most fundamental values are that create quality. I just don't think that way. I don't, I don't. I'm willing to engage with anything that somebody says is art and just see how it affects me. Hmm. But I don't shut out anything I, as a critic. I don't want to say, you know, conceptualism is bullshit or anything like that. I, I take the whole panoply or the whole spectrum of what passes for art, and I think to be a critic today, I have to be able to converse with any mode that's presented to me as art. And I guess that takes some time to have enough experiences so you can create comparative valuations. But I think, you know, I started 40 years ago. I wasn't, I didn't have such a huge data bank 
of comparison. You know, I had a university education and a master's degree. And I remember <clears throat> shortly after I started writing short reviews for Art in America, they started, I, they had me writing cover story, like long feature pieces. And one day she called and she asked me to write something about Robert Morris. You guys know who Robert Morris is or was? He's one of the most important of the minimalists in the 60s. Okay. Like, so to, to somebody like me, he's almost a mythic figure. Like, he only exists in art history textbooks. And, and I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be a critic judging Robert Morris? You know, who am I? I'm nobody. And uh, and then Betsy asked me, my editor, why don't you talk to him about his new paintings? Because he'd taken a new, some, he was doing something new. So I got in touch with him, and he asked me to come have lunch with him. So we went to this Italian restaurant in Soho. And... This is all really weird to me. But eventually I realized that's what artists do. They ask you out to lunch so they can massage you and make sure you write something nice about it. I mean, there's so much like mutual stroking going on in the art world that uh, you know, uh, I never felt that much pressure, I guess, because I just walled myself off from it but people often ask me you know what are you getting pressured all the time by people wanting your attention or a review or something mm -hmm. uh i guess so but there's also a, this there's an aspect to being a critic in new york that for me was very isolating Because there's always that feeling like, is this person like me for myself or because I write for the New York Times? Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And we kind of, you know, in a highly professionalized world like this, we, we do that with everybody. You know, what can this person, I like this person, what can they do for me? <laughs> uh -huh. You know? And so did you write a good view, uh, review? for uh, Robert Morris? <laughs> it wasn't as critical as I would be now. <laughs> I think at that time, I didn't really quite understand. I didn't have the perspective to frame it. I didn't really know. <laughs> One of the things you, you learn to do as a new, newspaper critic is try to, you have to be a quick study. You have to be able to read catalogs and press releases and stuff and, and sort of get the gist of it. And then you have to write in a way that seems like you know what you're talking about. You just avoid the, the places where you don't. You know? And you can give the illusion that you're deeply versed in, you know... Because I had to write about historical shows of ancient art at the Met or places like that. And... All you had was you had the catalog. You read the catalog, which was a hard thing to do. But <clears throat> yeah, that's the secret. That's a secret to uh, to many things, not just art writing. <laughs> I, 
I guess it's a, true in art too. I mean, there's the stuff I don't know how to do about painting. You could write a book. You know, <laughs> I, I I can do this one little thing. And in, in in art, in writing, I felt like I was a pretty good. I could write criticism. I was good at that, and that became my identity, and it became my job, my income, what I spent all my time doing, you know, and uh, I have to say it was a great sense of release to stop doing it. You know, I was in a place where I could, I could, and I also had a, I don't know if you read, Marshall, do you read, do you read criticism? Do you read the Times art criticism? I read some, yeah. I've, I've, I've read some of yours. I've, uh, I, I like older books, like, um, say, like, compilations of David Sylvester's criticism or something like that. I'll read those type things. I, his, I don't... his interview, Bookland's interview with uh, Francis Bacon is great. That is great. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I don't like. I don't really like to read about art at all anymore. And I love to read literary criticism. And maybe I've just not been overexposed to that. But I feel like literary criticism is a lot more range of imagination. I feel like the the, the discourse in art is. It's narrow in some way that I find boring. Why? Why do you think that is? Yes, yeah, say more about that. Um, well, I think you know it's an, we live in an age of specialization, mm. and art now is like a, a tiny niche culture compared to say movies. And in 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 the niche community, you have all this shorthand, these shorthand ways of talking, and you have art babble. You know, and uh, and then you would think, well, how about if we bring in someone who's not from the art world to write about art? Like, how about a novelist? And that doesn't work either, because a novelist who's not not in the art world doesn't can't you can't get the nuances of it. Have you ever seen a movie that got the art world right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That's so you know, funny. I think there are hardly any novels that get it either, and I don't know if it's just ungettable or what. But <clears throat> whenever the you know, movies, whether it's a big Hollywood movie or an independent movie, they, the, the art world is this sort of, they seem to take it as this fairyland or, or something. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's partly because the art world is kind of boring in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, artists just, you can't, convey what like a movie about a writer or an artist the most exciting thing they're doing is sitting 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're doing hardly anything. <laughs> you know? So it's really hard to convey. And, and uh, you know, um, <clears throat> I also have a side career as a cartoonist. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Sophie was sharing some of those. Those are great. So, you know, I've been doing that for five years at different degrees of uh, commitment. Lately, not so much, but um, yeah, that stop there. That one on the left, yeah, that's that's a version of the first fallen cone drawing that I made. I think it was five or six years ago. Anyway, um, when I draw these, I want them to be. I have the intention that they be funny. And how do I know that's going to work? If it's funny to me. <laughs> that's all. And, you know, you read some of these books about humor and they say, well, one of the things about humor is you can't make yourself laugh. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I, make, I can make myself laugh. And <laughs> with you, I, I laugh at, yeah. I could just sit in a like room. Like when I thought of this one, I laughed. I thought, this is hilarious. And uh, <laughs> so, I'm sure people will want to follow this. So this is uh, ball underscore and underscore cone underscore on Instagram to find, to find this work, Ken's uh, cartoon work. But it also has your paintings as well. Yeah, I didn't, I should divide them up, but I. Uh, I love it. It's great. This one, when I thought of this, I laughed. I was stoned, but I laughed. <laughs> and then I drew it. Hey, so. uh, do, do you want to look at some images, Ken? Sure. Oh, yeah. Sophie, do you have that? Do you want to bring them up on the screen share? Is this, just a thing, is this the regular thing you do, or is this just for me? We've done it with a few others. We always do bonus questions, so this will oh. sort of be uh -oh. the bonus. All right, so I pulled up some that... I think, personally think, are kind of funny, surprising paintings, and I want to see if you agree. I love that. Who is that by? It's a puppy, a little white puppy in a carriage. Do you know anything about this, Marshall? Who, who painted that? That's by uh, Jamie Wyeth, actually. Really? Yeah, Andrew's son. I think yeah. it's great. It is. It's bizarre. But do you think this is fun? Is this is this funny in 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 your way of thinking? It, oh, it's sure. Funny. No, my definition of funny is pretty broad. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, did he make it to be funny? Did he want it to be funny? Right. Yeah. How how important is that? In I was uh, like um. Thinking about like what Susan Sontag says about camp, like it's important that it's not trying to be camp in order to be camp. How how important is it to try to to be funny to be funny? So this goes to the intention of being funny. Uh, I feel now this I don't go to the close up of the of the dog. It's got yellow teeth. And is really nasty looking. So 
when I look at it, I think, what is going on here? What does this represent somebody that for the artist? What you know? There's some inexplicable kind of rage in this baby carriage that I think is really great. Inexplicable would be the the surprise, right? Like uh, just something very bizarre to me in this. Well, some I mean, one notion of humor is if you intersect two incompatible vectors, you know, the sweet baby carriage and the nasty dog, uh, that often is, you know, a recipe for humor. I always I mean, think if that dog wasn't in there, I wouldn't find this a very interesting painting. Right, right. I, I agree with that. And yet formally, I, it wouldn't, think about it, like formally, it wouldn't make any difference if you took the dog out. Right. You could put a pillow there or something, or a baby. Uh, so that's like, like I, when I grew up, you, like the formalist dogma would say my response to that nasty little dog has nothing to do with evaluating the quality of the work. Right. And I'm uh, saying it has everything to do with it. Uh, oh, that's interesting. You're just a you're formalist, then you're just focusing on the composition and technique then, right? Like, uh, yeah, no, no emotion. I'm, I'm sorry? No, no, no emotion? Right. Well, no psychology. Okay. Hmm. All right, go to the next one, Sophia. Uh -huh. What is that? This is an unknown uh, painting from England, uh, and I think it was the 1600s. Uh, no one knows who painted it. And uh, I, I, I look at this a, a quite a bit. I think there's some, really something to it. Oh, I think it's fantastic. You know the American self-taught artist on me, Philip? No, I'll write it down. Oh, um, how do you spell uh, the Ami? Um, I think it's A M M I. Uh huh. Phillips. <clears throat> That's such a strange painting. I think strangeness is another thing I always am drawn to. Uh, I mean, the strangeness is a form of surprise. It's not always funny. This is funny. But probably not meant to be funny. Right. Yes. So when does it become funny? You know, it probably wasn't funny to, it was probably a commission or something. Probably nobody thought it was funny. They just thought it was cool. <laughs> Why, why choose to do 
things basically exactly the same except minor differences is very weird to me. Well, they could be sisters. That have right? at the same time. Who have their, yeah. That's my guess, because actually they're, the portraits are, the faces are different. Sophia, do you like this painting? I don't know. I think it's quirky. Before quirky. It's quirky, it's quirky to us. That's the funny thing is, you know, all the art we see, no matter how old it is, it's contemporary now mm -hmm. to us. It's great. I think that's, you know, an, an art historian who knows this period probably knows have seen scenes a lot, have, has seen a lot of image pictures like this. What else we got? Yeah. We talked about that being funny already. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing that, uh, about that though. The, the Gustin was, celebrated during the time of abstract expressionism as a as a sort of minor art minor abstract what were you saying he was celebrated as a minor abstract expressionist yeah and one of the things that the abstract expressionists were famous for famous for was drinking and smoking and fighting and <laughs> you know bad habits i think one of his paintings is called bad habits so it's really personal. Mm. And that idea of making art that's personal like that was, you know, that came in the 70s. What do you mean? Well, I think, you know, if you're an ambitious painter, what wasn't making, wasn't un, unloading his own personal demons. I guess. I don't know. Um, hmm. Hmm, that's very interesting to me then. What is this? The painting I'm working on right now. <laughs> Does this have a title? No, I just, I feel like it's a psychological self-portrait. It's really funny. The expression of the great, chicken. Such a great chicken. <laughs> it is a great chicken. It's like caught. Whenever I'm, I'm uh, trying to draw a ball and cone and I can't think of, there's something I can't think of, I think I'll draw a duck. Because mm. ducks, ducks are funny. Ah, that's interesting. What do you think of the uh, John Curran? Is, is he funny because he knows he's He's funny. Um, I I feel very ambivalent about Curran, especially later Curran. You know his earliest paintings, like B. Arthur Top. I mean, his he got so crafty, you know, and. Uh, 
techniquey and it became this display of painter painterly capability i guess uh -huh. which is impressive and then along with that is this weird weird i mean what i like is like how do the sexes feel about each other you know Huh. How do men feel about women? Really? Do you find them mean in that way? Find them what? Mean in that way? There's a kind of mean-spiritedness about... Yeah. I mean, the, rep the repetition of, of grotesque Trans women made grotesque. You you wonder about, huh. but he's also in a sense about taking the temperature of the room, as you say. Huh. Like this is a ticklish thing, you know. Relations between the genders or these days. Huh. That's great. And, and what, ticklish thing. And what you yeah, and what you're allowed to say publicly about that. I mean, novelists can really get into the weeds with, you know, can really drill down on relations of that sort. Hmm, that's great. Yeah. yeah so I, I kind of support Kern's project, but I find it creepy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's perfect. How about this one? I don't know. Who this artist is? Is this supposed to be funny, Marshall? Well, I think there's a, there's something funny about it in that it's well, I, I would Ken's opinion. Yeah, he's a he's a contemporary painter. This guy, uh, Nick Alm, and it's just so earnest and romantic that it strikes me as funny. Oh, you're laughing! Uh, you're laughing at it, not with it. <laughs> I'm afraid so, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, well, I don't love it. Uh, I think it's like... It's so... Um, Kind of vapid, I guess. Uh -huh. Yeah. And and sort of sanitized in a way. This is sanitizing of the psychology of how people relate. I don't know. Huh. Not funny. Well, it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about this one? <laughs> What's this guy's name? I forget. Thomas Kincaid. Uh, this is this okay, is him right. painting Graceland in Christmas with a pink Cadillac up front, or a, or a, some sort of pink car. So the layers are intense. You have Graceland, Christmas time decorated with a beautiful like pink mid-century giant automobile up front. Well, first of all, I have to say, when I, as I look at this, I really like it. Yeah. 
it warms my heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then you have this problem, like, is it good art? Because <laughs> I like it? Because uh -huh. I'm a sucker for it? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of new age painting, so-called new age painting. If you look up on Google, I like a lot of that stuff. Hmm. I like to see stuff that's just unashamedly sentimental. Uh -huh. Some of Norman Rockwell stuff. Um, <clears throat> this is actually a much more accomplished painting, it seems to me, than what I what I think of when I think of Kincaid. But I'm not really, I don't know his work that well. Is it funny? I think it's, there's something funny because it's a little, I, what would make us laugh? Just trying to take it seriously makes me laugh. Yeah. Like, here we are. I'm supposed to believe in this situation. It's fantasy. It's as good as it could get, which may be... Maybe isn't that, that it's, it's like an archetype that we all have in us. I, maybe, I don't know about your family. I mean, Christmas with my family was horrible, but, uh, <laughs> but you still have that kind of notion of like home, you know, home and nourishment. I guess what's bad about it is this painting or that kind of vision is it represses all the dark, nasty stuff uh -huh. that we all know goes on with families or with Elvis, the king himself. Think about that. Right. <laughs> so we want this, I mean, in a political way, I guess, you know, you have like Reagan or Trump uh, broadcasting this fantasy and then you have a reality that's so at a, so completely uncaptured by that. Uh, but the fantasy is really compelling to people. Uh -huh. you know, it may not be this is the way the world may not be this way now, but if we uh, run things correctly, we can get it to be like this. Right. If the Republicans have it their way. Yeah, I don't know why I'm so drawn to these images by Thomas Kincaid. They're they're kitsch in some ways. They're an extension of like he feels like a natural progression from Andy Warhol, and it's just like so like it's like um it's like just eating all the good all the ice cream before the vegetables or something, you know. Have you looked, does, does his work affect you? I mean, is he an influence on your work? Thomas Kincaid? Yeah. I think so, yeah. I mean, I like him. Um, I love imagery like that. I, I would say that I'm not capable of doing imagery like that. So I don't, there wouldn't be a direct reflection. But I, I do find it very interesting for some, for those same reasons that you had you had mentioned. Well, um, who's the who's the guy? He does a lot. He does a lot at the academy. He makes big pictures of 
ice cream and candy and frosting and oh will cotton will cotton often combined with uh voluptuous female images uh-huh. so he's like trying to get that plus he gets to have his cake and eat it too you know because uh-huh. he's clearly being ironic right Whereas right. Kincaid, Kincaid is being totally sincere. That I, that's so true. I think that's why I would look at Kincaid more than Will Cotton uh, because of that. The sincerity I find compelling. I feel like Will Cotton's kind of winking at me, and I get yeah. a, I, I get enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was on a I was on a radio show. Uh, remember Leonard? Do you guys know who Leonard Lenny, Leonard Lopate is? Sure, I remember him. Yeah, he's great. I was. He got me too. So he's no longer with us on the air. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Anyway, he had me on, and for once, and I think <laughs> one and only time, but with some other people. But he asked the question: What would like in a world where Art tr- regularly traffics in su- supposed shock value. What would really be shocking? And I said, what would really be shocking is if you, if you took an artist who was like a Trump supporter, an ultra right winger, and and showed paintings by that guy. Yes. You know, <laughs> that would be shocking and probably get canceled. But not that I, not that I would share. You know, the art world is pretty, I don't think the le- so much to say the left, but it's liberal in a very sort of soft way. Well, Ken, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad I got to get to know you tonight. You're, you are uh, fascinating. Your interests are totally in line with my own and I couldn't have been happier to talk to you so thanks well, for coming I feel like on. we could go on for another three hours but I gotta get I to eat. So, but yeah this is great thank you thank uh, you so much this was amazing I love talking to you too <laughs> maybe we can have you on again later all right looking forward to part two it took a lot of notes is it surprising is it strange yeah it's it's really kind of a secret there i think he was giving us a lot of or just putting better points on things that we talk about on this show and say and stuff i think our our rubrics for quality are very similar um i'd rather be surprised in painting than anything, you know? Like the ones he was looking at, like the lady with the two fish, or two fish babies is surprising and weird. It breaks rules. I love it that he loved the Thomas Kincaid. That was great. Yeah, you guys, you guys are both uh, really getting into that one. Because he knows why it's good, and uh, you don't meet pe- many people who do know why something like that's good. That's why I like him.
far away from reality that I can't. What's that? It just feels so obtusively far away from reality. <laughs> why? Why that's good? Yeah, like I don't. I that's what makes it. That's the weakness for me. That's why I can't get access it. I can't. I can't even appreciate it because I'm like, how dare you try to convince me? <laughs> this is real. <laughs> no, that, that's why. That's why. Yes, this could be the key to unlock it. He's trying to convince himself, okay. and I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I think we got it, Marshall. We might we might be able to move on to a new artist now. <laughs> no way. <laughs> the uh, the yeah, trying to convince yourself is 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 so real so in a way like we were talking with ken all reality is up for debate who knows what it is are you a flea on a dog on a whatever just are you just a thought but trying to convince yourself that things are are beautiful and worthwhile is about as real as you could get i think i basically feel like what he's saying about opinions is that you can't help but have one it's not even a choice. You're going to have an opinion. Right. And owning that opinion is, it's only half the battle because he has to explain it as well. But that's kind of what I was saying is that our contemporary discourse in so many ways is being diluted down to just Instagram likes. There's no real ownership or depth of opinion. Um, and that's all we have, you know, and that's sad. It's oversimplifying the human experience of opinion. And because of that, we can't, we don't have quality critique. We don't even value it. And that's, it's not good. But I think with him, he's a very interesting, very smart guy. And I'm jealous of the fact that he sincerely reckoned with so many things understood the value of ideas, understands the value of conversation for 40 years. That's like a level of enlightenment that is enviable that I'd love to to have more of. Like that's a really like good even, way to say that. Even in his more philosophical musings at the beginning, the universe is constantly creating. He's constantly through that dialogue and his paintings and stuff, it feels like he's a totally different person than he was 30 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, because he's always evolving through art. You know, some people do it through religion, some people do it through sports, some people don't do it at all. And I like I like where where his journey has brought him to. Pretty Pretty smart, pretty savvy, pretty interesting guy, you know. So Ken is pretty great, huh? Did you know that he paints, too? He has this kind of little comic series that he makes um, called Ball and Cone. And you can just look up his name, Ball and Cone. I mean, I think Tun will put a, a link in the description here. But 
they're great. You can see, kind of peer into his mind about how he thinks about humor. And for the most part, these little cartoons, they're just one uh, segment, one or two segments, and there's no words. There's not really any dialogue. Everything is Everything you need in the joke, for the most part, is in the image. It really gives you something to think about. Um, check them out. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And I got to say, if, if you're feeling like you're one of those people who's really getting something out of this podcast, please donate. It really makes a difference for everybody, really. Lastly, I'll leave you with the Art Grind Hotline. Tell us how you're doing. Tell us what you think. What's on your mind? What have you been making in the studio? 929-267-4830. Again, that's 929-267-4830. All right, guys. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye.